a devastating new set of Donald Trump indictments that are leaving as many tantalizing questions as they answer. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm joined on Beyond Politics by former prosecutor and former member of the U.S. Congress, Paul Hodes, and our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston. Once again, here we are on a somber day for America, a former president of the United States indicted for a third time in the last five months, this time in connection with his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, which culminated in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Federal prosecutors are accusing Trump of a three-pronged attack on democracy, conspiracies that, quote, targeted a bedrock function of the United States federal government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of a presidential election. He faces four charges, including one count of conspiracy to defraud the government, one count of conspiracy to violate rights, one count of conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, and one count of obstructing an official proceeding. It's also worth noting that the charges accuse Trump of depriving people of their civil rights provided by federal law, and there are six unindicted co-conspirators, five of whom media sleuths have figured out who they are. Paul, once again, we're going to lean on you and your experience as a prosecutor to help us understand this indictment. The most important question that I think is on everyone's mind here is the strength of the case. What did you make of it? The prosecution has amassed a series of facts which lead to a pretty inescapable conclusion. People hear the words January 6th and they think about the riot at the Capitol. The January 6th insurrection and riot at the Capitol plays a part in this, but it doesn't play the major part in what the prosecution has laid out. What the prosecution lays out is a plan, a plot, a conspiracy to overturn the results of the election in various important states by means of the phony elector scheme. And the plan culminated with the January 6th insurrection, which in the conspiracy for the plotters' minds was designed to either shut down the process of counting the electoral votes or pressuring then Vice President Pence to, to recognize the phony electors and thus shut down the process. So the indictment itself goes essentially state by state, sets forth in excruciating detail day by day the various events that occurred with the conspirators attempting to work over the state systems and state officials and state processes in the various states to create the false slates of electors who would then, on January 6th, be counted as the real electors. We already know that, for example, in Michigan, 17 people have been charged under the state law in the phony electors scheme and we're all have we have been waiting for indictments to come down in Georgia where we expect them to charge a wide-ranging conspiracy under state law about this phony electors scheme the one of the most interesting parts of this indictment is the use of what's called 
with the KKK law, civil rights law, section 241, that's been used to prosecute a wide variety of crimes involving voter suppression. It was originally to go after the KKK who were suppressing black voters. It's been used, however, in a wide variety of voter fraud, voter suppression cases. And it essentially is the count in this indictment which says you have committed a crime against the American people by working or conspiring to overturn or prevent their right to vote. That's a fascinating count that I did not expect to see in the indictment. There are two potential defenses that have been outlined for Donald Trump. One of them is that he's protected under the First Amendment, that he can basically say whatever he wants. That argument does not seem particularly strong, according to legal scholars. They point out that, for example, you can't say, stick them up and give me all your money. That's not protected speech. That's the predicate for a crime. The other one, though, gets to a legal concept that you've brought up before, Paul, which is mens rea, state of mind. What Trump can claim is the George Costanza defense. It's not a lie if you believe it. And I genuinely believed that there was election fraud going on. And so I wasn't acting corruptly. Paul, what do you make of that defense? And how confident would you feel, given the need to overcome that defense, as a prosecutor going into this case? It's a fascinating question, because these are crimes committed with computers and telephones and conversations. And this isn't stick them up, give me all your money at the barrel of a gun, except on January 6th, which is merely the capstone of this whole thing. I once prosecuted a case where when it came time for a final argument before the jury, I held up a pen and I said, ladies and gentlemen, this doesn't look like a lethal weapon, but in this case, it is. So back to the defenses. In terms of First Amendment, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. Forget the First Amendment argument. The mens rea argument is more nuanced. And Trump has to say, I am such a befuddled, dumb bunny. I am so stupid. I am so out of it that when somebody said to me there might be election fraud, I just instantly believed it. There was no, absolutely no evidence. And even though I told people there was no evidence of this, I still believed it. I was lying when I told them that there was no evidence about this because I believed it. There are, I believe, enough statements that Trump has made and enough actions that he took, including, for example, his telephone conversation, the famous telephone conversation with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia in which he said, we just need to find 11,078 votes. We just need to find those votes. If you listen to that phone conversation, you don't hear him saying that these votes are fraudulent. He said, we just need to find the votes. That's just one example. They're peppered throughout the evidentiary basis of this indictment. There are things that Trump did and said, which I think are sufficient to establish its mens rea. And then you get to the reasonable man standard and the reasonable man argument, which is, would any reasonable person in the position of Donald Trump 
having been told over and over and over that there was no fraud by his own Justice Department, his own advisors, his own family, by the very conspirators who plotted with him to obstruct this proceeding and take away the right to vote, although he's been told over and over again that there is no fraud. And he has never, there's not been a scintilla of evidence of fraud produced. And every lawsuit about it was turned away and dismissed that no reasonable person in the position of Donald Trump could have, could have believed there was actual fraud. So I don't think it saves him. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I just want to point out a really weird aspect of all of this, which is that what Donald Trump essentially has to argue here is, like I said, the George Costanza defense. It's not a lie if I really believe it. So Trump's defense has to be, I wasn't committing fraud. I was genuinely believing Sidney Powell one of the unindicted co-conspirators here, she's actually co-conspirator number three in the indictment, has previously been implicated in defamation lawsuits, including the Dominion defamation lawsuit. One of her arguments there is the opposite of what Donald Trump is arguing here. Because when it comes to defamation, one of your potential defenses is doing a parody defense. It's no reasonable person could think that this is true. What Sidney Powell has argued through an attorney is that all of her BS about the election, all of her claims of fraud, all of her claims of vote rigging, no one could believe that's true. It's just opinion. It's just, it's like a parody. And that's why it's not defamation of dominion. So you've got Sidney Powell over here arguing that no one should believe the things that are coming out of our mouths. And then you've got Donald Trump arguing over here, no, 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 you definitely have to believe all of the things that are coming out of our mouths because we believe them to our core. And it has to be both things at the same time. And yet both things can't possibly be true at the same time. Alicia, what stood out to you from this indictment? I was more looking for the reactions of the political people. And we talk a lot about free speech and what isn't. And one of Trump's lawyers was on network news last night saying free speech, free speech. And the case that came to mind for me was the case of Michelle Carter. It was a case in Massachusetts where she texted her boyfriend and told him to kill himself. And he did. And she was convicted of manslaughter. And it was a groundbreaking case. That was why it made national news was they were charging her with telling something. My mom used to say to me, if someone told you to jump off a bridge, would you? That was always a thing. And now I guess the answer is you can be held accountable if you tell someone to jump off a bridge and they do. And that's just another way to look at this whole free speech thing. And did he do that? This fake elector scheme is the most serious of because it's tangible. It's not a question of does he have the right to lie as a politician because politicians lie. It's a question of was there action taken to actually create fake electors to change the numbers? Now, one of the other unindicted co-conspirators is a guy named Kenneth Cheeseborough, who is apparently- I thought it was pronounced cheese bro or cheese. cheese Yeah. I just think it's funny that it's like cheesy poof, Donald Trump. I don't, whatever. So- (laughs) Cheesy poof. He is the cheesy poof. (laughs) 
but he is considered the architect of this fake elector scheme. And it's a name most of us hadn't heard before it's coming out about who these these co-conspirators are. I think it's going to be interesting to see if any of them, Rudy Giuliani's on the list as well. John Eastman's on the list. Let me see. Oh, Jeffrey Clark, the guy who wanted to be made the attorney general in the final days of the administration so he could take some action to overturn the election. Will they get indicted? Will they be charged with something? This whole thing saddens me in part that so many people fell for this absolute charlatan and I don't understand it and gave away their lives and their bar licenses and for what? And I think it's a sad day. Paul, you're right that the focus here is rightly on all the other stuff before the insurrection. The insurrection does play in here. One of the charges here is conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, which refers to the counting of the votes. And the indictment does lay out and relies to a great extent on what Donald Trump said to the crowd that day, telling them to fight like hell. If they don't, they won't have a democracy anymore. And then telling them to march down to the Capitol, saying he was going to be right there with them. There was a lot of speculation ever since January 6th that he might be charged with inciting a riot. He wasn't so much charged directly with that or under the Sedition Act, but all of the particulars around it. Paul, what did you make of that? It would have been, in my view, a tougher case to charge the sedition and conspiracy to permit the sedition because the riot that occurred while Trump clearly, he never says directly, go take over the Capitol. He, he, kind, of, he kind of walks to the edge and then when the riot happens, he doesn't do anything to stop it. All of that becomes circumstantial evidence of the intent to obstruct the official proceeding and his actions after, while people are in the building, is also evidence of his intent to see that the official proceeding was obstructed. So I think this was a wise and cautious choice by the special prosecutor. To me, the reaction from leading Republicans, it feels like they're all getting in on the cabal here and they are themselves becoming part of the conspiracy. It's a Washington truism that people don't care so much politically anyway about the crime as they do about the cover-up. And it feels to me like all of these people are trying to engage in covering for Donald Trump. I'm not gonna read every freaking statement that all of the presidential contenders, I guess I should call them contenders, even though they're all almost certainly going to be also rands here. Just to get a flavor, Tim Scott decided to pivot to attacking Hunter Biden rather than saying anything about Donald Trump. Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy, yeah, it was bizarre. Vivek Ramaswamy said, Donald Trump isn't the cause of what happened on January 6th. The real cause was systematic and pervasive censorship of citizens. Vivek, what the fuck are you talking about, you Bro, moron? Bro, what are you talking what? about? Ron DeSantis said that he would pardon Trump of any federal crimes and said that any Washington jury was going to be unjust for Donald Trump. He can't get a fair trial. He can only get a fair trial, apparently, if you panel a group of Trump supporters in Florida. Nikki Haley didn't say anything. Do you have Mike, Pence? Mike Pence was the most interesting. I will hand Mike Pence this. Once again, the only guy with strands of connective tissue in his spinal column. Anyone um, who said, puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. No, Our country is important than one man. Our Constitution is more important than any one man's career.
That was an excellent statement. What's really interesting to me is that the Republican House of the Republican majority House of Representatives is going to try to impeach President Biden. They've got, I don't know, 14 different things they're unhappy about. They want to impeach him. And meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy, his statement was they're just trying to distract from the real crimes of Hunter Biden. Now, that is the approach I think that congressional Republicans are going to take. Alicia, you have also an insider's view here. Paul has his prosecution experience. You have being on all the right email lists. Donald <laughs> Trump's response to this was particularly unhinged, even for him. It used to be, I thought, an ironclad rule in politics. Don't make references to Nazi Germany. Just don't. It never works out well for you. Donald Trump has thrown many things in the politics playbook out the window. And he leaned hard into this one. He said that the fact that he's being prosecuted for crimes means that we have become Nazi Germany. Anything else stand out to you from all these emails that you're so privileged to receive? I had literally between Trump directly and Trump supporting organizations, probably 30 emails fundraising what in the last 15 hours. I did send Doug Burgum <laughs> my $1 so I can get my $20 gift card, though. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This is a total aside, not like the topic of the hour, but <laughs> this is a fascinating strategy. So what's happened is it's so important to make it to the debate stage, because if you don't, you're basically an afterthought. You have zero chance. The point about Doug Burgum is that because it's so important to hit these criteria and make it onto the debate stage, and they're both polling benchmarks you have to hit. For the second debate, you have to be at 3% in two national polls. And you also have to have a certain number of donors on your election report. And by the second debate, it's 50,000. And so campaigns that have money, including Burgum's, have actually taken the unorthodox approach of paying to the, paying more to get donations than they're getting out of them. So if you give Doug Burgum $1, he will send you a $20 gift card. I'm considering doing this. I could use a $20 gift card. So anything else stand out to you from Donald Trump's descent into total insanity? Look, the emails are deranged. His comments are deranged. And the thing about emails is they tend to go through staff, I think. They usually do in most campaigns, even much lower level campaigns in president and all capping certain words, referencing Nazis, Soros back to this. And it's lunacy. It's unhinged and it's working. Maybe you know, that's he's the raised... defense. Maybe the defense. <laughs> maybe that's is in... the defense. Maybe insanity defense. <laughs> that's awesome. He spent $40 million so on legal fees. That's $36,000 a day on legal fees. This all came oh, out yesterday. Trump raised in the first six months of the year, $53.9 million. He spent $52 million. And so his pack has on hand less than $4 million. That's not great. This is all money that you're supposed to be spending on running for president. Instead, he's spending almost all of his money on legal fees. And it's not just for him, because essentially anyone who is possibly getting swept up in any of his legal cases who asked the campaign Will you pay for my lawyers? They're saying yes. Do you guys remember Cassidy Hutchinson, the January 6th whistleblower? She testified before the January 6th investigation committee that she was put under pressure by her boss, Mark Meadows, to protect the president. And she was directed to a Trump-connected lawyer who advised her to not remember things very well 
there's a reason that Trump is doing all of this. It's a great way to control people. It's a great way to make sure that they don't turn fully against you is you pay for their lawyers, you pay all their legal bills, you keep them in the fold. And it turns out that costs you $52 million in six months. And it's only gonna get worse from here. Here's the problem, as I see it. He has one trial scheduled, I believe it's the New York trial, is scheduled for March of 2024. He has the classified documents trial scheduled for April of 2024. Now he's going to have another trial in this January 6th case scheduled, hopefully before the election. And we still don't know what's happening in Georgia. And there are more charges that could still be dropped in both classified documents. Paul, what's going to happen here? How does the legal system work this out? They all get together in Atlantic City at a Trump casino and draw straws. It's like Oprah. It's like you get a trial and you get a trial. Everybody gets a trial. The judges are going to have to work it out. Let's assume he's the nominee. That actually does complicate things a little bit because you've now got the Republican nominee for president facing, let's just say, four trials in two different states, four different jurisdictions, state and federal, trying to figure out a schedule to make this all happen before November of 2024. That's pretty jam-packed when you've got such complex charges as these federal charges. Think about, if you take a look at the 85 paragraphs of the indictment and think about all the documents and statements and witnesses that have to come in the federal case, we'll call it the January 6th case, that's huge. You're relying on people and documents and that can take a long time. So if you start in March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, you have eight months to try four major cases against a former president of the United States, scheduling is going to turn into to an issue. I'll okay. touch on something he said. He said, Go. if Donald Trump becomes president, there's no way. And want to know why? The new national poll that came out and has Donald Trump head to head with Biden, 43-43. That's a very good poll for Democrats. Because in 2023, you know how many people are taking polls? Out of a thousand phone calls, you're lucky if a hundred say yes or taking a poll. And do you know who most of those people are? Trump supporters. Trump supporters want to tell the world want to tell a pollster, they want to get his numbers up there. The cultists of Trump will say yes to a poll every single time. The problem with that reassurance, which I think is accurate and insightful, is that it has a bit of the quality of you've just taken a test for, I don't know, HIV, that you are 99.9% .9 sure you don't have. And that's good. It's good to have that kind of confidence. But because the consequences are so grave, in case you're wrong, you just, you can't feel good about it. The dude won in 2016, and there was a perfect storm of bad things that happened. Russia interfered, and Jill Stein did extremely well. Gary Johnson did extremely well. And then, look, exogenous events matter. In 2020, Donald Trump was on track to win re-election. It was more than a 50-50 chance that he was going to win until COVID happened. And so all I'm saying is that, yeah, all things being equal, I agree with you, Alicia. And if the election were held right now, I think Joe Biden would win. But we don't know what's going to happen in the next year. All kinds of crazy events could occur. But his, his numbers aren't going to move up. Donald Trump is at a ceiling. You're not going to earn a vote at this point, Donald Trump, and certainly going through criminal trials and criminal proceedings isn't going to increase your vote. You've hit your ceiling. And therefore, 
I don't know what dramatic events. The economy could crash again and my eggs could go back to $7 a carton. We just lost a credit rating. The reason we lost a credit rating was is because, because of Donald Trump. Yeah. No, it was not I've because of Donald side. Trump. The reason we lost, the reason that Fitch lowered the U.S. credit rating is because of the shenanigans brought about by Kevin McCarthy over the debt ceiling. If it happened under Donald you're honestly telling me you guys wouldn't be blaming Donald Trump? No, I'm not blaming Donald Trump for this. Mm -hmm. Look, I can give Donald Trump credit for things that he did that were good. The Abraham Accords happened under his watch and with some of his instigation. That was good. Operation Lightspeed, sorry, Warp Speed, he doesn't Yeah, it was get much more all, Star Warsy. No, Star Trekky. Star nope. Trekky. Warp, nope. Warp, my friend. Warp, Warp is Trek. Warp Speed was also in Star nope. Wars. Nope, Lightspeed. They call it Lightspeed, which is stupid because Lightspeed. I've seen every movie 57 times. How yeah, it's a that? limit. They call it, they, remember Leia says, no Lightspeed. And, and Han says, it's not my fault. Yes, I do remember that. Actually. All right, we're going to do a viewing together. The point is Operation Warp Speed it was genuinely a good thing. It wasn't as responsible for the development of the vaccine as Donald Trump would like to claim, but it was generally a good thing. You can give Donald Trump credit for good things that happened when he was president. In this case, Fitch, the ratings agency, said that it was because of the debt ceiling standoff. The debt ceiling standoff is a Republican freaking thing. Kevin McCarthy did it. The Democrats passed a clean debt ceiling increase three times under Donald Trump as president. They are not the hostage takers here. So anyway. Okay. While you were Look. ranting, I just learned more than I ever wanted to know about the difference between light speed and warp speed in Star Trek and Star Wars. And it's Trek, right? Warp is Trek. Warp is Trek. Hyperdrive. Hyperdrive. Yes, that is Wars. And I'm look, embarrassed that I forgot this. Can we cut all this out? I don't want anyone to know. I don't know. No, not only am I cutting, we're it's leading with long. this. All right, look, thank you. We've tried to make this as fun as we possibly could. As Alicia said before, this is a very somber, very serious thing. And all we can do is try and keep, keep our chins up about it. And we will, as Donald Trump says, see what happens. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you next time.